This is Medea Benjamin. I hope you listen to Community Radio KBOO 90.7. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Welcome to Prison, The Hidden Sentence. Raising awareness and providing education and insights for individuals and families with incarcerated loved ones. Educating and empowering through personal stories of those affected by and involved with our prison population. Hi everyone, this is Julia Lazarek with Prison, The Hidden Sentence. And today I'm here with Emma Lugo, who is a producer for Community Radio and a volunteer in the Women's Prison in Oregon. She's also the president of the radio station KBU and president of her synagogue. Emma is going to share the stories that she's been privileged to hear during the years of interviewing people in custody. Emma, it's always good to see you and I'm looking forward to hearing the stories that you're gonna share with us on this podcast. And could you tell us about community radio and how you got started? Oh, thanks so much for the introduction, Julie. And it's such an honor to be here on Prison, The Hidden Sentence. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've listened to probably half of your shows. And I just so admire the work that you do. So I'm a producer for Community Radio. And as you may know, Community Radio is a little bit different from doing a podcast. But in some ways, it's really similar. Community Radio started here in the 1960s, and it got started by activists who wanted to give a voice to people with who are marginalized and on the fringes of society. And the radio station that we're at here in Oregon has gotten really big over the years. Now we have 14 staff people and a million-dollar budget, but we still have exactly the same mission, and that's to serve the voices of underserved people in our community. And one of the most underserved people there are in all of society is people who are incarcerated and people who are formerly incarcerated. And in addition to those people, the stories of their families are also something that is marginalized and mostly made invisible by our culture. So uh, we really get into telling those stories with Prison Pipeline, which is the name of the program that our collective produces. Well, Emma, thank you for explaining community radio. And I think it's really important to have it out there. And thank you for the nice things that you said about me too. So that that was really nice. And I also wanted to know, how did you get started in this? And then we'll go into the, the sharing the stories. Well, the way that I got started was I met some people from the collective, the Prison Pipeline Collective. I was in Portland. I was pretty new to Portland and I was looking around for something to do. And I went to this community space and there was a woman there and her brother was incarcerated and he had never experienced lengthy incarceration before this sentence. And the woman who was giving this talk 
she was talking about the show Prison Pipeline and she was talking about her own story. She started doing the show, participating in the show as a way of kind of trying to understand something about her brother and what he was having to go through because he was having a really hard time. I mean, it was really hard for him being in prison. So she told the story of her brother and what he had to go through. And it was really moving to me. And then she talked about Prison Pipeline, which is this um, radio program that got started a lot of in a lot of ways, the same way that the Prisoners Conference, the Prisoners Family Conference got started, and maybe even the way your show got started. It got started by people who had experienced incarceration or had loved ones who had, and they were concerned. They were also people who were activists and wanted to do something about the system. So they thought one of the things they could do is educate people. So she told me this story, and I was just so moved by it. I mean, I was so moved by that story. And I happened to be volunteering at the prison at that same time. In the small town that I'm in, they have a book group that meets over at the prison. And uh, you can go to the book group once a month and we all read a book together. So the people on the outside, we read a book with the people on the inside. And then we all get together once a month and we talk about the book. And as you know, if you're an adult in custody, this is at a medium security, maximum security prison. In order to participate in something like that, you have to have pretty good behavior. So like, I mean, you can't be in solitary. You can't have a lot of disciplinary infractions. You have to have a pretty clean record and have good standing. And so the people who were participating were people who were really motivated and they wanted to have that engagement, that interaction with people from the outside. And uh, so I was doing that at the same time. And when I heard about this, the show, Prison Pipeline, I thought, well, I've got to get involved in this. I mean, prison is something that I personally don't know much about. I mean, I was raised without that knowledge and without that understanding. And I became someone who really wanted to become involved as an advocate and as a storyteller. Uh, not for me to tell my story, but for me to use what I already had a lot of knowledge of, which is radio, television, media, and let the people who are incarcerated tell their stories as well as their family members. So that's what we try to do. That's really interesting because that's where I started. I wanted uh, people to tell their stories and I started Prison the Hidden Sentence with a blog and then moved into the podcast. So it's just really interesting how you started and the similarities because I have personal experience and I know what it's like and that's why I call it the hidden sentence because the families on the outside are really serving the sentence with their loved one on the inside. So I really thank you for sharing that and just your big heart and wanting to help people. About half the people in our collective have loved ones who are incarcerated or who have been incarcerated. Our lead for the collective is Karen. And you've met Karen before because Karen was my co-host at the Prisoner's Family Conference. And Karen told the story of her son at the Prisoner's Family Conference. Um, Karen's son was arrested. And and so Karen got thrown right away into the criminal justice system in Oregon. And uh, her son is out now and still struggles with mental illness. But she uh, became an amazing advocate. And it was all because of her loved one who was incarcerated. Prison Pipeline has been running on KBU for almost 20 years. I got involved in it about seven years ago. So, I mean, I'm one of like literally probably 20 or 25 people 
who have produced this show over the years. So, uh, and a lot of those people had loved ones who were incarcerated. And then there's a few of us like myself who are just privileged enough to be able to work with those people and to really learn from them as well as from the adults in custody. Well, I think it's important that you've opened your heart because a lot of people don't see people or the families of the incarcerated as as acceptable. I, I can't think of another word because there's a stigma. People don't want to be near them or they think they're bad people. And people are people and we need to humanize them. So just bravo to the collective. Oh, yeah. It's really intimidating at first. I mean, when I first went into prison, I had all of those biases. In spite of my liberal education, which is supposed to make me sensitive to all of these social issues, and in spite of my years as an activist on the left, I still had extreme bias against people who were incarcerated. And I had to learn to like, think through everything because I thought all of the negative things that I'd been taught about people who were in custody, you know, that they completely deserved it, that prison was a good punishment, that there was something fair about it. I didn't know anything about how they spent their time in prison. I didn't know anything about the resources or I didn't know anything. I really just, I was completely naive and scared, intimidated. I was really intimidated. The first time I went into a prison, I was so intimidated and just so stupid because I didn't know anything. And it was because I had been brainwashed with all of that stuff from the media, everything from all the cop shows that ran in the 90s and the 2000s and all the stuff that they tell you on television that makes you afraid. I had all of that. I can, yeah, I can so relate because it was very scary the first time that I went in to visit my brother and then you get used to it. It's a whole new world. It's a new normal or new unnormal, I should say, because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's so different. It's like my friend says that it's like you open the curtain and then you could see behind it this whole other world that you never knew existed. And it's just shocking And I know that you've spoken to a lot of people. Are there any stories that you can share from people that you've spoken to? Oh, I mean, so many stories. I mean, in the seven years I've produced for Prison Pipeline, I've probably interviewed, oh, I don't know, maybe 100 people, maybe 120 people. And every single story is just so amazingly touching. I think that The stories that really get you right away are the stories with people who are on death row. Either somebody who's been on death row and has been exonerated or from someone who is actually still on death row. I think those are always the hardest ones and they're usually the most challenging too. In some ways, I think interviewing someone who's been on death row and was exonerated is probably the most challenging kind of interview because You're talking to someone who, like Juan Melendez, um, who spent years on death row and then was exonerated. But also interviewing people who are on death row and learning about what it's like to be on death row, the kind of culture that people have to live with when they're in that sort of environment. It's also really touching. It's really super challenging. It's also really challenging. I've interviewed people who had loved ones who were murdered And then over time came to forgive the person who murdered their family member. Hector Black is 
someone I, I know personally who I interviewed. His daughter was murdered. And over the course of about 20 years, he befriended the man who murdered his daughter. And I think with all of these stories, especially, I mean, the ones that I'm talking about, they're a little bit extreme. I mean, that's not like your average person who gets sent to prison. But I mean, with all of the stories, what I've really learned is that in almost every story, especially if it involves someone who's committed a capital offense, there's almost always a mitigating factor. I mean, there's almost always a story of abuse, of childhood trauma, of neglect, not just one. Usually there's like multiple sources of trauma that basically inform the child before they're even old enough to know what's happened to them that really kind of set a pattern for their life choices when they get older. And it's almost always men. I mean, it's almost always men and it's almost always young men. So there's like a certain period of time in a person's life when if they've been traumatized in a particular kind of way, they really get set up. I mean, our society, our culture really sets them up for failure and sets them up for lifelong incarceration. And most of these men that I've interviewed are like really intelligent men who, if they'd had any other kinds of opportunities in life besides the ones that they ended up with, would be really productive members of society. And if they were let out now, they would probably be really productive members of society now. One of the things that I've really learned in all of my years of interviewing people in prison is that there's a reason for prison to exist but there's also a reason to provide incentives to be released from prison. So somebody who's committed a crime, especially a violent crime, probably needs to go to prison to learn something. I mean, but almost everybody learns. Most of the people I've ever talked to, they've learned. And then they spend years, decades even, being warehoused at taxpayer expense and not being given a chance to reclaim their lives and to try to make good on the opportunities that we've offered them. And a lot of that is because people who are incarcerated are basically used as pawns in electoral politics. I mean, we're seeing that happen right now here in Oregon. That's some of what I've learned. I mean, like I said, the people that the hard- are some of the hardest ones to talk to are people who have committed murder and people who have loved ones who've been murdered. Because as a journalist, I go for both. I mean, I don't just talk to people who are incarcerated. As much sympathy as I have for them and as much sympathy as I have for their families. I also talk to people who have been victimized by crime because their stories matter. And I don't think that we can really understand the whole system unless we talk to everyone. A lot of times these people know each other, you know? I mean, there's usually a pretty intimate connection. It's pretty rare for people to experience random violence. I mean, it does happen, but usually like perpetrators and victims know each other. That's very common. A lot of times they're even related. Yeah, I'm trying to unpack everything that you said, everything that you've spoken about, heard, and you've experienced in talking to people. At the conference, we've heard them speak about ACE of adverse childhood conditions, also about restorative justice, where you're saying that where the gentleman's daughter was murdered and he forgave the person that committed it. So restorative 
justice is really big and some prisons do have that. I know um, Terrence who spoke at the conference talked about that and how that because he was so young when the crime was committed that he didn't realize how it affected the family. So I think restorative justice is really important. I'm glad you brought that out. And also by them being able to tell their story and working with the family when they do get out, I think that that does help reduce recidivism too. Have you spoken to people that have gotten out of prison and followed their journey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we start prison pipeline. I mean, we, you know, I, I mean, just, just to make it clear again that we're a collective. So we there's actually right now there's four of us producing the show. There's been as many as eight. We cover everything. I mean, we cover everything we can possibly think of. So we talk to people who are parole, who are post-parole. We talk to people who, even people who are post-parole and then have gone back in to be advocates or to be support. Even people who have gone out and then gone back in again. You know, we talk to DAs. Of course, we talk to a lot of defense attorneys, but we also talk to prosecutors. We talk to lawmakers. We talk to people who advocate for incarcerated folks, whether it's through programs like the Oregon Justice Resource Center, where they're advocating for changes to law, or just people who have different kinds of specialties that they come in and work with, like uh, different kinds of trauma, different kinds of abuse. We talk about educational programs that are available for adults in custody. We talk to people who do religious instruction. You know, I mean, we really try to think about everything that there is that goes into... We also talk with people who are abolitionists. So a big part of our programming involves talking about the political side of prison, talking about people who you know, are political prisoners and also people who are trying to reform and change the entire prison industrial complex or even abolish it. So yeah, we just, we really get the whole gamut. So, I mean, we don't just talk to adults in custody. We talk to like, or their family members. I mean, we talk to everyone who's involved in in the system to try to get a, a pretty good picture of it. But really, I mean, we're always talking about it from the perspective of, of advocacy. So we don't ever do any programming that like tries to reinforce the kind of negative cultural stereotypes about incarcerated people. Uh, we always treat them with the utmost humanity and we try to look at it from the perspective of advocacy. How can we change the system for the better? Yeah, that's so important too. And earlier you spoke about the interviews that you did with the people that were incarcerated and some of the reasons behind it and the type of people they are. And I'm interested in hearing more about some of the other interviews that you've done. When you've interviewed the families, what are some of their perspectives or things that you've heard? They're just so heartbreaking. I mean, interviewing a family member of someone who's incarcerated, which is something I do a lot of. It's just the most heartbreaking, most challenging kind of conversation I think there is. A couple months ago, I interviewed a woman whose father died and he only had like about a month left on his sentence. He was incarcerated in Texas and it was his second time in. He'd been in before and it was drug related. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the mid-level sentences are usually drug, especially in Southern states. And 
in some of the more rural states. He contracted hepatitis C. He got a pretty lengthy sentence. I mean, it was enough time to really make a dent in his life, make it hard for his family. And while he was in prison, his hepatitis C just got worse and worse. And one of the things that we hear a lot about, about people who are incarcerated, is medical neglect. I mean, we do a lot of stories about medical neglect on prison pipeline. And I know that there's people on the outside who think that prisoners complain and that they're just trying to get attention. But the truth is that, I mean, there's really a lot of medical neglect in the system. I mean, people get very inadequate levels of healthcare. And there's not a lot of incentive for most DOCs to really invest in the health of the people that they're in custody of. So this this father, you know, I mean, a father of this entire family and loved by literally just dozens of people. I mean, he contracted hepatitis. I mean, he had hepatitis C, but his condition got so bad that he was sent to the infirmary and then he was hospitalized. And for about two weeks, his daughter didn't have any idea. What, and his daughter had talked to him every day and didn't have any idea what was going on. She didn't know where he was. And it's really challenging too, you know, because sometimes, I mean, people get moved around a lot. And sometimes even somebody who's really sick, you know, might get moved. But especially if they're not sick, I mean, and you as a family member may not find out. You might have to like go through several channels just to find out where your loved one's been moved to. And that's what happened to her father. He he got moved to a, a hospital And she wasn't told, and she spent two weeks trying to track him down in the Texas State Penitentiary System. And he'd been moved to a hospital like several hundred miles away, and she didn't know where he was. And by the time she found out where he was, he was almost dead. And she only got to see him after he had slipped out of consciousness, and he wasn't even aware of what was happening. And she only got to see him like in the last few hours of his life, and chained to a bed with a guard, even though he wasn't even conscious. She didn't really get to say goodbye to her father. She had talked to him every day while he was in prison. And she came on the show and she told the story of his death and of what he had meant to his family. And that interview was really unique for me because it was, we did it over Zoom. And she didn't tell me that the family was going to be on the call, but over 20 people joined that call. And they were all completely quiet as she broke down in tears and told the story of her father dying in the hospital, chained to a hospital bed, not getting to say goodbye, spending two weeks desperately searching for him. I mean, every interview I do is completely heartbreaking, unless it's a a good interview. It's a heartbreaking interview. I just wanted to interject that that story that you just told, unfortunately, is not uncommon that the people that are incarcerated are getting older because the sentences are longer. Yeah, so it's unfortunate. And the prison does not call you when your loved one is sick. So her finding out that he was in a hospital and being able to see him, even though it was too late that she did get to see him because some people don't get to see them And I can talk from experience because my brother had hep C and he died in prison. And back then, it was about 10 years ago, I never imagined that he was 
in the infirmary handcuffed and just from what I've heard, assuming that he was, and I don't know any better. So I, I just want to thank you for sharing that. It's really heartbreaking, but we need to humanize people that are in prison and how it affects the family because we love our loved ones and we're not who we what we did right we're human beings it's something that we did it's not who we are so Mm -hmm. i i wanted to thank you for sharing that yeah and i wanted to also i mean i think it's interesting we don't really get to talk to the da's and the judges and law enforcement what are some of their perspectives well the thing about prison i mean here's one thing that i've learned the thing about prison is that everybody who's involved in it, whether you're a journalist or a judge or an advocate or a family member, or you're incarcerated or you're post-parole or you're the child of everybody who's had something to do with prison, their life is touched by it and it changes them. It changes. There's something about them. It affects them. As a journalist, I have to talk to all of those people and I have to be able to understand enough of what they're saying to ask them good questions and to let them talk. It's this whole process. I mean, if there's somebody who really has an opportunity to do something to reform the system, it's our state legislators. I mean, our state legislators, I think more than any particular person in the system, really has the means of changing it. And I think that part of what I hope to do through Prison Pipeline and what I hope that all of us do who are advocates is to change the conversation around incarceration. I mean, in the same way that, I mean, it may not happen today. It may not happen for 20 years or even 100 years. But what I hope is that by us continuing to do the work of telling these stories and making people aware of everything, that we're going to, over the long run, have an impact on the system and we're going to make it more humane. In the same way that the racial justice movement has really taken, you know, has really taken a bite out of policing. I mean, the racial justice movement, when George Floyd was murdered, that changed this country. I mean, but the reason it changed the country around policing is because there was like 50 years of advocacy before that, going all the way back to Uh, Jim Crow and everything that happened during the civil rights movement all the way up through today and also the black power movements going all the way back to the 60s. I mean, but it took that long. It took 50 or 60 years just to get to George Floyd. I mean, I hope that we're part of that process of, you know, bending the arc of justice, that long arc that Martin Luther King talks about Hopefully we're bending it just a little bit towards justice through the work we do. Emma, thank you so much for that. I want everybody to hear what you just said. And we will make sure that this gets posted. The transcript script will um, be posted. And I want people to be able to listen to your radio show. So if you could spell it out and tell us how to access it, how we can listen to it. Sure. Yeah. Prison Pipeline airs every Monday on KBOO Community Radio. That's 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon, and also in the Willamette Valley. You can also hear it online at kboo.fm. 
And uh, we air every Monday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. So that's West Coast time. All of our programs are also archived on kboo.fm. So you can find every show we've ever produced since they started digitizing shows like 15 years ago. And again, that's Prison Pipeline on KBOO Community Radio. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing everything. And thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. Thanks so much, Julia. Thank you so much. It's been great being on the show with you. You're you're totally an inspiration to me. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Prison the Hidden Sentence. It just completely blew me away. It's a great, great podcast. And you've really kept with it all these years. Thank you so much, Emma. This concludes our podcast for today. Hi, I'm Julia from Prison the Hidden Sentence. You can hear more stories or share your story at prisonthehiddensentence.com. And follow us at Hidden Sentence on Facebook and Twitter. We are Prison the Hidden Sentence, raising awareness one story at a time. Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. This month, besides being the season of Thanksgiving, here at KBOO we celebrate Native American heritage. Tune in throughout the rest of the month for special programming hosted and produced by Native American creators as well as programming highlighting Native American, First Nation, Indigenous, and Aboriginal cultures here on KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland. Saddle up and ride with country music in your head from 6 till 9 every